Uh, so before we get too deep into this, I just want to point out that Barnabas, whoever it is, the author of Hebrews, begins his book by making one point and then giving six, no, sorry, not six, given seven supporting passages, seven cross-references to make this one point. People, people say the book of the Hebrews is um, written not so much like a letter, but more like a sermon. So I want you to imagine for a second that one of us was preaching a sermon. This, this whole Jesus is better than angels, it's not even a main point. It's like a sub-point. So he's got a sub-point with seven cross-references, okay? So next time you, you get frustrated about how many passages we put on the screen, just remember this, okay? We're, we're, we're not as bad as the Book of Hebrews guy. Um, seven cross-references. So he's trying to make this point very emphatically. He really wants to drive home the idea that Jesus is better than angels. He just says that time and time again. He says, for which of the angels did ever say this? He said it of Jesus. He didn't say to the angels. Or which of the angels could we say this about? No one but Jesus, right? Jesus, angels. Jesus, angels. Do you see it? He's making this point very clear, very emphatic. It goes to all these passages to say Jesus is better than the angels. And so we're going to look at why that's so important to him this morning, why he's stressing that and magnifying the sufficiency of Jesus over and above angels so much in this text. And so just to kind of give you a, an overview of where we're headed, the observations we're going to make, it's basically going to be three things. Number one, he's saying that Jesus is a better messenger than the angels, that the messenger himself is better. Number two, he's saying that Jesus has a better message than what was proclaimed by the angels under the old covenant. And then thirdly, we'll look at the idea that this message of Jesus, this new covenant, is full and it's final. Um, so first of all, Jesus is a better messenger. One of the things I read about studying this week was this idea that um, first century Jews made a really big deal about angels. And we'll talk about why they may have done that later on. But that was a big deal to them, studying angels, what the scripture says about them, all the different kinds and types and, and names and functions and all these kinds of things like that. To the point that um, we can see even within our New Testament evidence of the idea that some of them were actually worshiping angels. Colossians 2.18 says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So Paul's warning them of people who were, would come to them, would come to the church and insist that they, yes, worship Yahweh, but also really worship these certain angels. It was a really big deal to them. And I want to talk just a minute. Um, so to that end, we don't want to spend a whole lot of time chasing that rabbit. But I do want to spend a little bit of time just giving us a basic biblical framework for what we do know about them. Um, and so there's basically, um, you know, the idea that there's, there, there's three types um, of different, of different angels. And so I'm, here's the thing, like, I'm not a details guy. Um, I, I'm the type of person that, like, when I get bogged down in, like, all the little nuances and details of what's taught here, what's taught there, I get confused. I start making mistakes. Um, someone has to, like, proofread all my notes and slides before it goes up on the screen. Otherwise, oh, some of you caught it. Kate Stevens, looking at you. You're sitting there thinking, oh, he didn't write angels. He wrote angels. Gotcha. Well, hey, look at this. Three types of angels. I got you. All right. I got you. So that's where that is. All right, moving on. I don't want to get too far off on that tangent. Um, let's talk about what we, 
what the scriptures do teach about angels. Um, number one is that they have many different appearances. They show up in lots of different ways. In fact, you could you really could kind of categorize it in um, angels, and there's also these heavenly beings. Some people say they're also angels, different type of angel, um, but the Bible specifically mentions this type called cherubim. You see a cherub at the kind of the gate guarding Eden. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, there's a cherub with a flaming sword guarding the entrance of the garden, keeping man out of it. Um, You see an instance of them in Exodus 26 when the Ark of the Covenant is described that there are two cherubim kind of sitting on top of the Ark, covering it with their wings. You see these beings described in detail in Ezekiel chapter 4, saying that some of them at least have, have four wings and four faces. So you've got these real heavenly, majestic, kind of otherworldly kind of creatures in heaven worshiping the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, you've got a description of these, these angelic beings called seraphim. And it says the seraphim that have two wings with which they fly, with two they cover their eyes, and with two they cover their feet. So just even how they behave and the, and the, the fact that they have six wings to just observe and show reverence to God's holiness um, testifies to God creating these angelic beings just to represent how glorious he is. But then you also have different types of angels who appear to men. Think about um, the shepherds, right? Keeping watch over their flocks by night. The angel appears to them and then the whole heavenly host of angels appears, a great multitude of angels, and they're greatly afraid because these beings are very majestic, very glorious, very bright, most likely. But then there's other times when angels appear to men and either look like other men or sometimes they're even mistaken for men. You see this in Genesis um, chapter 18 and 19, where angels are actually interacting with people in the form of other people, and some people don't even know that they are interacting with angels. Um, So they have many different appearances. Number two is that they are greater than us in glory, right? That Regardless of how they're appearing, there's a sense in which there's a, there's a majesty and a greatness about them that supersedes what we see in each other on a regular basis. Second Peter 2.11 says this, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So angels are greater in might and power than we are. That's why a typical response to angels when people see them is, is reverence and awe, and sometimes even fear. And then number three, they are messengers. So they bring the message of the Lord to his people. In fact, the the word um, that we get angel from, the original word actually means simply messenger. They are those who bring and carry a message. And so respect for them was in order, but often in that culture, when this book of Hebrews was written, often taken to an unhealthy extreme and fixation on who they are and what they did. And so the author is basically saying that there are these angels, but Jesus is greater than the angel because he is not a messenger of God. He is the Son of God. Um, That he has greater authority, that he has greater power, greater might, and he is worth our attention versus fixating our attention on angels. In fact, in regards to Jesus as a messenger, we could say it like this, that the, the angels brought a message to people Jesus was the message to people, right? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. They directed us, angels would direct us towards the way, Jesus is the way. 
the angels carried the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Hebrews at this time were facing a a temptation probably because of persecution that was heavy among Christians at the time and not as heavy among Jews, um, that, that Jewish Christians would have this temptation to revert back to Judaism, to kind of downplay the things of Christianity and being a Christian and refocus their attention on what they knew and what was familiar under the Old Covenant. An author of Hebrews is reminding them that whatever regard they have for the Old Covenant and angels who delivered it to men, that Jesus is worthy of even more adoration and respect and attention than that. So Jesus is a better messenger. Jesus also has a better message. So this whole thing, why he goes off in this long rant, it wasn't just about comparing Jesus to the angels. It was about comparing the covenant of Jesus to the old covenant, which was administered to men by angels. So when we think of covenant, think of this. Think of like you've got your Old Testament and your New Testament. And think of those two things as the old covenant, Right? And then the new covenant, that there, was, there was a covenant, a, a relationship, an order, and a structure to how men related to God. And all the, the rules and, and, and regulations and all the, the progresses and rights of that were outlined under this old covenant that the angels gave to man, right? So that's, that's what they're thinking, what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that there's this old covenant, but Jesus has brought in this new covenant. He's saying the new is greater than the old. So by saying that Jesus is better than the angels, the writer is actually saying that the covenant Jesus mediates is greater than the covenant that was mediated and given by angels. And furthermore, he's saying that by holding on to the old, this old covenant, you're, you're rejecting and denouncing the new covenant, which is actually greater. Paul actually does this a lot. Paul actually does a lot of, in his writings, contrasting the old covenant, the old way of things, which he might refer to as the law, to the new covenant, the new way men relate to God and come into a right standing with him through the person and work of Jesus. One of the passages where he contrasts these two things most heavily is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So I want us to take a little bit of time to look into that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says this, Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Listen to this. Not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And when Paul says that that the letter of the law kills, that the old covenant kills, what he's saying is that it shows us a need for forgiveness, that all the rules and regulations and constant failures we see of God's people in the old covenant show that there needs to be a better deliverance provided. And then in verse 7 he says, For if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's saying that the old covenant was good. It had this glory and this greatness to it. But that, in fact, it was so great that when the Israelites looked at Moses, after Moses had received this this law, this covenant, they couldn't even look at his face. It was so bright because the message was so good. But that was fading away and now has given way to an even better covenant that's worthy of our attention and is even more glory than the first, which was fading away. So he goes on to say, 
will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? He's making us this, this, this similar point that Jesus is better than the law. In fact, in John 1.17, John says it this way, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 9, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, again, listen to the language, he's referring to this old covenant as the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Now, here's the thing. I feel like if this is one of those passages where if you were just to read just this passage by itself and not read any of other Paul's writings, it might give you a, maybe a short-sighted or two-dimensional view of Paul's view of the law and the Old Covenant. Paul, Paul loved the law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The guy was a Pharisee, right? He wasn't saying it has no use, we just need to ignore it or anything like that. He is just saying that this new covenant is so much greater and it's so much better that it makes this look pale and dim in comparison. I've got a good friend. He's actually here today. His name is Brad Cardwell. Um, some of you guys know Brad. He's a, he's a great guy, and he's got a lot of great qualities and attributes about him. Um, he's someone of great discernment. In fact, at, at IGO, we call him Captain Discernment because he's just so good at discerning situations, and after a conversation, he just has insights other people don't have. He's a guy that uh, somewhat of a mentor to me. He's a guy I would call for parenting advice or marriage, things like that. But the best thing about Brad Cardwell, my favorite thing about him, is his unique and gifted ability to describe how good food tastes. Okay, Brad's got a lot of good things going for him, but that is like, that takes the cake. I mean, he is like the king of like, he should be a food critic. Like, if you get him talking about some restaurant he went to or something his wife made that was good, I mean, he's, he's probably going to start throwing stuff and, and yelling. Like, it's, he's, he's going to go off. And one of the phrases I've heard him use a lot, which I think is just hilarious, is he says, you know, I was talking to him once, like, he's telling me at this place, yeah, oh, how was it? Oh, boy. Kai, it'll make you want to drive your truck through Walmart. <laughs> and I, I've always struggled with the, how does that and maybe I'm just not eating at the right places, you know, but I've never taken a bite of something and thought, right now, babe, get in the truck. We're going to drive through Walmart. It's happening. Today's the day, right? I've, I've never in my life made that connection between food, but somehow he does. And so I, I was thinking about that and contemplating, why would, what's the connection there? And I, I think it's, it's a reach, okay, but, but here's, my, here's my thought on why he would say that, is that think about the level of unnecessary harm and destruction that would be caused if one were to take one's vehicle and drive it through a Walmart, right? I mean, think about the bills you would have to pay, the time in prison you'd have to do, right? Like, it would be a really, really, really bad thing. And I think what Brad is saying when he says that is, this is so good that if you were to do that, you wouldn't even care. Like, it wouldn't matter because the food is that good, right? And that's essentially, I think, what Paul is getting at here by contrasting to. He's saying, this is so good. What Jesus has done is so good, so final, so complete, so sweet, that even something as glorious as the old covenant is as nothing compared to it. That it is so good that these other things don't even really matter. They are secondary compared to this. And this struggle that the Hebrews were having may seem kind of foreign, right? I mean, a lot of us, a lot of us didn't come in here this morning and we need to repent because we were worshiping angels this morning on the way in and making too big of a deal of that, right? So it, 
on the one hand, this seems like, man, this is one of those texts that, like, I guess they were struggling with this, but what does this have to do with me? But if we look deep at it, I think we can see a lot of similarities in some things we do and some struggles we have. So let's just ask the question, why did they like angels so much, right? I mean, why would a first century Jew be so um, captivated and fixated on this idea of angels? Um, and I'm going to give two answers to that that are somewhat speculative, but I think, I think also true. Number one, uh, they were mysterious, right? I mean, we're drawn to things where there's like a, a vagueness and a mystery around it, right? Because we see it almost like as a, there's like a puzzle there that if we study hard enough and look long enough, maybe we can make sense of it and, and solve this kind of puzzle. And friends, I think that is actually very relatable. Think about how many times that we fixate on things that are vague and mysterious in Scripture rather than setting our attention and our efforts on excelling at the things that are clearly revealed, right? I mean, it's tempting for us to fixate our ideas on things in Scripture that are just kind of vague and kind of open-ended and trying to put together that puzzle and, and make it make sense. And the reality is we have plenty to occupy our hearts and minds with the things that have been clearly revealed. I mean... Most of us, for our obedience, it's not a knowledge problem, right? You get that, right? Most people didn't, uh, didn't walk in on a Sunday after, after 20 years of following Jesus and go, hey, you know, the pastor, he, he read this verse that let each of you not look not, only to, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And I had no clue. I guess Jesus wants us to think about others and not just ourselves. Man, if I would have heard that 20 years ago, that would have been a game changer, right? I mean, I would have lived my life completely differently. It's not usually a knowledge problem. The things of God, how we're to live in response to him, have been made pretty clear to us, right? But sometimes I think these things that are vague, that are not as central to the faith and to our doctrine, become almost a distraction, right? That it's more fun to focus on those things than on the things that are clear and have been revealed to us. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, man, I love this verse, um, simply says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And I love that verse because it begins with this is the will of God. Because how many times have you had conversations with yourself or with other people, right, about what's the will of God? What is God's will for this? What is God's will for that? What does he want for me in this situation? You go to a, a Christian bookstore, and you're going to see all kinds of God's will for your life in this area. God, how to find God's will. Like, one day I'm just going to go off. I'm just going to snap. And I'm going to, like, print a bunch of stickers with that and go into the bookstore and just slap that sticker on top of all those books about God's will. Like, this is it right here. This is what he wants. He wants us to live in such a way that our holiness shines bright in a dark world, that we keep ourselves free of the things that taint and discolor the world and don't honor God. That's it. Within that, we've got all kinds of freedom to live how we want, right? But that's not fun. <laughs> It's not a fun verse, right? No one wants to sit around and do a study on that, an eight-week part study on how to not be like the world and be holy. A lot of times those mysterious and vague things in Scripture can draw our attention away from the things that are clear and are true that we should be focused on. Another, another way I think this happens is that there's often some book that comes around. About every five years, there's some book that just kind of comes into Christian culture that everyone thinks is like, that's what we needed, right? 
well, no wonder I couldn't live my life according to God's plan. I, I didn't know this. 20 years ago, it was the prayer of Jabez. Y'all remember this? Some of the old folks are nodding their heads like, oh, yeah, prayer of Jabez, right? Not a bad book, right? But basically this guy, Bruce Wilkinson, found this pretty obscure verse in the Old Testament, something you would just kind of read right past it and not give much attention to it. Wrote a book on it talking about how we need to pray this prayer and it's going to do these things. And the book itself wasn't bad, but man, it was like everyone had this response like, finally, this has unlocked a new level of holiness for me. If I had only known this, right, things would have been so much different. More recently, the Enneagram. I know the Enneagram book. <laughs> the responses are hilarious. Some of you were like, yeah. Some of you were like, oh gosh, not this again, <laughs> right? Like, Again, not saying it's a bad book, not saying there's anything wrong with it, but sometimes we just, these things come along and we have this response like, now we really know how to follow Jesus and understand what he's done now that we have this. It's a similar response to, I think, what Paul would say, to, or the author of Hebrews would say to this fixation on angels. Like, hey, that's, angels aren't a bad thing. Scripture's talks about angels, but if you're going to fixate on something, fixate on Jesus and the gospel. Make that your thing. Like, make that be the thing you recommend to people, the thing on your lips, the thing on your mind, the thing you're excited to talk about that helps you know how to live in a way that honors God. So they were mysterious and intrigued. Another thing about angels that I think was why they were so drawn to it is that they were mediators, right? The angels were kind of seen as like a step between that for, for, for a Jew living in the first century, the idea of me going straight to God, man, that's a, that's a big distance, right? That's a long ways for me to just approach God with my prayers, my sacrifices or whatever. Maybe I need to get in touch with some of these angels that they can kind of, you know, um, kind of grease the wheels for me a little bit, right? Kind of give me an easier path. And friends, I think if we're not careful, we do some of the same things. Maybe you've got a friend who you believe is a little bit more, more holy, more righteous than you are. And you think, man, if the things are going bad in my life, I'm going to talk to that person. And maybe their prayers will do something that mine won't. Because they seem to be really close with God in a way that I'm not. Right? Or we may think something like, maybe that person will kind of put in a good word for me. So that on judgment day, you know, maybe God will listen to them in a way that he wouldn't listen to me. I think it speaks to why we sometimes idolize some of these celebrity pastors that we see as anointed in a way that perhaps we are not. Friends, there's one Holy Spirit, one God, one faith, one Father, one Spirit that every believer shares. Because of what Jesus has done, all of us have the same level of free and complete access to the Father. We do not need go-betweens. We do not need mediators. Jesus is the great mediator, and he left nothing lacking in his work of mediation and restoring us back to a right relationship with God. If we look at verse 4, it speaks to this about Jesus' mediation, what he did, what he accomplished. Look at Hebrews 1, 4. It says, Jesus, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I don't know about you, but that, that trips me up a little bit. It's confusing. And it's just one of those verses you're like, huh? 
the name he inherited, like, oh, so the author is saying the reason Jesus is better than the angels is because he inherited a name that is more excellent. So it's, is it a name thing? What, what is this? And so I did a little bit of study on this, and before we, before we go there, let me just throw out a quick disclaimer. Anytime we go into like a, a study on something that's like, hey, here's what this verse means when it's not just abundantly, plainly clear on a first reading of the text, I just always want to be careful with that because what I never want to communicate, what none of us ever want to communicate from the pulpit, is that because we have history of research or certain tools at our disposal that we're able to explain things to you in a way that you could never understand. You guys can't really understand the Bible, but we're here to explain it to you, okay? It's not where we're going with this. Don't want to communicate that. If everyone in this room were to sit down this afternoon and read the book of Hebrews from start to finish, you would all draw the same conclusion. Jesus is great, and he's all we need. We would all get that message, right? So it's this, this kind of study isn't to say that like the message of God is unavailable to those without certain knowledge or history or tools, but there are certain nuances within that that can trip us up, and a little bit of research and study can help us with that. Um, so the breakdown, I think, of understanding there basically happens in this, is that the word inherit is very different from the way we use it. When we think of the word inherit, it's a very passive thing, right? It's like, if I inherit something, I did nothing to gain or earn that thing that I inherited, other than I just happened to be born at the right place, at the right time, to the right person. And because of that kind of luck of the draw, I then have something gifted to me that I really did nothing to accomplish or earn. But the word inherited in this context would mean something more like earned or achieved. So what does it mean that Jesus earned or achieved this name, Son of God, this title? How could Jesus earn or achieve anything? Let me just read this quote, and then we'll unpack it. This is by Richard Phillips, and he says this. In Roman society, when a son came of age, and if he was approved as a man by his father, he would be ceremonially received and bestowed with his name. So it was in Christ's resurrection. By raising him up from the dead, God gave final approval to him who had perfectly fulfilled the law and obediently endured the cross, bestowing on him the name Son of God with the Father's divine and supernatural signature. So what he's basically saying is this, is that Jesus earned a title that was uniquely available to him. An inheritance isn't available to everyone, only certain people, and that there was this name, this, this title, this um, accomplishment that was reserved and set aside that only Jesus could achieve. Only Jesus could accomplish what he did on the cross. It's not like you or I could have just gone and done that. It was an inheritance set aside by the Father for him with a special task that must be done and that Jesus fully accomplished all that his Father desired for him to do and be. And there is a sense which, right, it was man who sinned and it was man who needed to be restored to God. And Jesus, before he took on flesh and became man, was in some sense unable or unequipped to accomplish that task. But he became just what we needed. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus did achieve something as a man that he could not achieve before he took on flesh. And because of that, God puts this seal of approval on him as the name above all names because the payment was full 
and the work was complete. And Jesus died on the cross. He took upon himself the sins of humanity, dying in you and I's place that if we would believe in him, we would be forgiven and restored back to a right relationship with God. And as simple as it sounds, after Jesus has done that, the only thing left for us to do is trust and follow him. We don't need angels or special books or celebrity pastors to help bridge that gap. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The debt has been paid. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. In fact, Peter would say that the angels actually envy us because of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this idea of worshiping angels, it's like Peter would hear that and go, no, no, no. Hey, they're jealous of us as recipients and bearers of the gospel and as benefactors of what Christ has done on the cross. They wish they could see and feel what we see and feel, that the angels are actually envious of us. Lastly, Jesus' message is final. Right? We talked about there was the old covenant and then this new covenant. And it's not like, it's not like you had step one was the old covenant with Moses and the law. Step two, Jesus comes. You've got the book of Acts, this, the church, all this other thing. And eventually you're going to have step three, which is something else. No, no. Step two is it. Okay? When Jesus comes back, it's not to usher in a new covenant. It's just the, the full consummation and realization of all that he accomplished on the cross playing itself out to its full extent. Because what Jesus has done is so sufficient and so perfect and so final, so complete, nothing can better it or add to it. His return is not a new covenant, but a consummation of the work he accomplished on the cross. I'm going to throw one more phrase on the screen and, and we'll close with this. In the new heavens and new earth, we will walk upon the streets of gold while standing in the forgiveness and righteousness that Christ purchased for us on the cross. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for our time today. Thank you for Hebrews and just how it does remind us so vividly that you are enough and does it in so many ways um, by comparing Jesus to the angels and how much greater he is. Um, so God, in light of this, I just pray that we would be a people who, when we become fixated by whatever the next big book is around the corner that, that everyone fixates on, or the next celebrity pastor, or whatever it is, God, that we would be so enamored by Jesus that those things would seem in their proper place which is secondary, peripheral, simply, simply means of communicating the message of the person of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.